Uh, we will now hear today's scripture reading, uh, and then after that, I will be back for today's teaching. Today's God speaks to us from Acts 8, uh, chapter 8, yeah, sorry, Acts 8. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women, put them in prison. Those who had been um, scattered preached the word wherever they went. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, put, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas and straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. The word of the Lord. So the, uh, the idea of conversion, if I were to ask you about conversion, what might be some of the things that come to your mind? Uh, for me, growing up, I heard some amazing conversion stories uh, of people who uh, trusted in Jesus. Stories where uh, God rescues people from this, these deep, deep places of despair. Uh, and maybe for some of you, that was you. Or maybe that's some of your story. Maybe some of you have stories uh, where the, the prodigal son, you read about the prodigal son and you think that's quaint, uh, that kind of a story. And if God's rescued you from that kind of despair, praise be to God. But for me, the concept of conversion was always a really tricky one because uh, none of those stories ever resonated with me. These amazing conversion stories never res resonated with me because my Christian story is that I've 
pretty much always believed what the Bible says about Jesus. Now, as a result of that, what I will say is that I've gone through these seasons of really questioning whether or not my Christian faith was a true belief in faith, or was it simply the results of a cultural or environmental conditioning that I had, and that's why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian uh, because I was born in the United States, and I was born to Christian parents who raised me in the church. Do I genuinely believe all that the Bible says about who Jesus is? It's the kind of thing that I've wrestled with. That's why so often those conversion stories never really resonated. But here's, here's the thing. We all have different stories. Everybody here and online, uh, we all come with different experiences, different stories. Some of you right now are Christians, and you have never, never really had any memory of not being that Christian. Some of you, though, have testimonies of God radically saving you right from the brink of death or destruction. Uh, Some of you that are here, you aren't really sure what you believe about the whole Christianity thing. If you were asked if you were a Christian, you might say yes, but you're not really sure why you would say yes. And then there's, there's some of you who just flat out reject the whole premise of the Christian faith. And the way you see it, believing in Jesus is fine for some people, but it's really not for you to each his own. But... Here's the reality for all of us, no matter what our stories might be. Here's what I hope we walk away with today. Is that regardless of what your story or experiences are, conversion is central to our understanding of the Christian faith. Whether you were the worst of the worst or you were the best of the best, church-going folk, in the end, to be a Christian is to realize that believing in Jesus in some abstract way is radically different than trusting in Jesus in concrete ways. That the Christian faith is experiencing a conversion that takes Jesus from the abstract to the concrete. It is experiencing him in a way where your life never ends up being the same as a result. And so I hope, I'll say this on the front end, I do hope that those of you that are here, that maybe you've never been a Christian, I hope today frankly, that you do experience this conversion that we're going to be talking about today. But there are others of us here, maybe you've been in the church your entire life, but yet Jesus has in some way remained this abstraction to you. It's not as concrete as you desire it to be. Today, I hope that you also have a conversion experience. I pray that we all leave here different. Now today we're going to be continuing on in our series, Extraordinary Through the Ordinary, looking at how God works in extraordinary ways through ordinary people. Uh, And today we're going to consider what extraordinary conversion looks like in our lives. And I want to do that by looking at probably one of the most famous examples of biblical conversion, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And to do that, we're going to take a look at three different things that happen here in order to understand conversion better. Uh, We're going to see here that conversion is a moment, conversion is a process, and that conversion is a relationship. Let's understand what those three things mean. First, conversion is a moment. First, we need to look at this this remarkable story that we just heard read. Uh, The beginning part of our passage references what we considered last week. If you were with us, um, I'll be noting some things that we talked about last week throughout today. Uh, But last week, we looked at the murder of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Uh, The murder set off this 
uh, systematic persecution of the church throughout the land. And right at the center of this persecution was this man named Saul. And verse uh, 8, 3 tells us that Saul was dead set on destroying the Christian church. So who is this man? Who is Saul? Well, Saul was born in Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey, uh, but he was born to Jewish parents. Now, the reason why that's interesting is because he was born in Tarsus, and as a result of being born in Tarsus, he was also a Roman citizen by birth. But he was born to Jewish parents, and so in that way, he was also part of the nation of Israel. Now, as we'll see later uh, in the book of Acts, this provided him an extraordinary amount of privilege over the course of his life, It should be noted that also that Saul would eventually go by the name Paul, but it's not because his name was changed, uh, but because Paul was his Greco-Roman name. Having grown up in the Roman Empire as a Roman citizen, he would have had both of these names. And some have stated that, uh, you know, Jesus changes his name on the road to Damascus. Uh, We just read the story. That doesn't actually happen. Rather, what's happening there is that Uh, Saul begins using the name Paul when he goes off to be a missionary to the Greco-Roman world. It was a way of contextualizing who he was. It was a way to emphasize his Roman citizenship, a citizenship, again, that afforded him all kinds of privileges that were not given to others. I mean, in in a lot of ways, it would be very similar uh, to him being an American citizen, right? To be an American citizen actually comes with a lot of privileges that frankly we don't even realize unless you're not one. If you are not an American citizen and you look at American citizen, you very clearly can see all the privileges uh, given to American citizens. Uh, The comedian Trevor Noah uh, recently, who's from South South Africa, if you don't know, he was recently making fun of Americans uh, right now who are taking fits over the fact that they can't just travel wherever they want to go as a result of some of the poor handling of COVID. Uh, But one of the things that he notes is that there was a time when we could travel to 180 plus countries. And right now, though, no one's letting us go anywhere. Our passport has become kind of useless right now. Um, But one of the things we know to be true is that as Americans, if you're an American citizen, we always had and we will one day continue to have free reign to go wherever it is that we want to go. It's a very uniquely American experience that, you know, for Noah as a South African, he never got to experience. For Paul, having a Roman passport was a lot like that. A lot of important privilege that would serve his ministry well. Uh, The other thing, the last thing I want to say about Paul that kind of gives context to his story is that when he was young, he moved from, uh, he moved to Jerusalem to study the Hebrew scriptures, and he would study under uh, the renowned rabbi, Ga, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Gamiel? Gam, Gam, I always get that name wrong. I'm glad I'm doing that in front of all of you. Gamiel? Um, but this renowned biblical uh, scholar and rabbi uh, was known, this would have been essentially the, the Harvard of Hebrew studies. This was the man to study under. And Paul had the opportunity to do so. Uh, in Philippians 3, he is, uh, Paul is des- describing his experience as this uh, Jewish scholar that he becomes. And he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was the best of the best. Paul was this incredibly bright, incredibly smart, incredibly privileged man. And this man, with all of this knowledge, all of this privilege, has set his eyes now on crushing the Christian church. Right now, he seeks to use every resource available to him to ensure that the message of Jesus no longer goes forward. He's so committed to it. 
that at this point, he would uh, take what he believes about God and he would use it as a way of stopping all those who believed in this, this Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And as a result, in chapter 9, verse 2, uh, it tells us that he went to the high priest, Saul goes to the high priest, in order to get legal permission to crush the flourishing church that's in Damascus. Now, Damascus was a, a commercial city where caravans converged in from all directions in the ancient world. Uh, and Paul realized that if the church really took off there in Damascus, it would get spread all throughout the world. And so he sets his sight to crush that church. But on the way to Damascus, everything changes. On the road, he is confronted by a resurrected Jesus who comes in radiating glory. Now, as you can imagine, this, has been, this would have been an extraordinarily overwhelming experience. Uh, all Paul could say in the midst of this confrontation was, who are you, Lord? And Jesus' response, I love Jesus' response. It's so simple. He says, I am Jesus. You're persecuting me. Now go to the city and wait until you're told what to do. That's it. And this, this encounter leaves Paul speechless. He's left blind, and the men that he was with are left speechless and scared. And so all they know to do, all Paul knows to do at this point, is to go to Damascus, to finish his journey, to go and to wait for the three days to see what happens. Now, in one sense, this is a remarkable experience that is extremely unique to the person of Paul. This experience that he has with Jesus in glory on the road is unique to him. But in another sense, this is actually not a unique experience at all. In fact, to be a Christian is at least in part to at some point have a confrontational encounter with Jesus that leaves you completely different than you were before. And we're going to see in a moment how that was the case, but Paul's life from that point on, this encounter with Jesus, would never be the same. This encounter with Jesus coming to him is ultimately Jesus confronting him in his sin and calling him to obedience. And that is the story of every Christian. To be a Christian is Jesus coming to you, confronting you with your sin, and then calling you to obedience. And there will come a point for all of us when a conscious decision is going to have to be made about whether or not we are going to believe and then trust that Jesus is everything that he says he is. And for some, that happens in grand fashion, like the Apostle Paul. In others, it happens in least dramatic ways. And I'm just giving an example of a dramatic one. I have a pastor friend uh, who was once telling me the story of how he came to faith. Uh, he was a drug addict, and he was shooting up with a friend uh, who had, this friend had grown up in the church. Uh, and while they were strung out and high, this friend starts making fun of Jesus and making fun of Christians who believe in salvation. Now, for my friend, that mockery was actually the first time that he'd heard about Jesus and his salvation. And while strung out and high, he immediately, at that moment, through this mockery, 
became aware of his sin and his need for a Savior. And that night, trusted in the Lord, never turned back. Now, there are countless stories like that. And again, for some of you, your conversion is dramatic in that kind of way, that confrontation. In many ways, you resonate, again, with the story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. You lived a wild and litigious life until one day you came to the end of yourself. Some of you here have experienced that kind of conversion. Some of you here need to experience that kind of conversion. But then, of course, there's others. Maybe your story, again, is not nearly as dramatic. Again, for me, I grew up in uh, a pastor's home. Uh, I never got in trouble, never did drugs, never even drank. I was a very straight arrow. But all that moral goodness was easily leading me to self-destruction. You know why? Because all that moral goodness made me incredibly self-righteous, assuming myself better than those that could not measure up to my standards of righteousness. There was a part of me that resented the crazy stories that people told about coming to faith because, for me, it didn't make sense why they get to have all the attention about their stories. I never did anything wrong. But their stories, for whatever reason, got all the attention. And as a result, I lacked empathy, I lacked compassion, I lacked understanding, and that self-righteousness was leading to destruction. Now, it's interesting, in the, just the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, in that story, if you pay attention, there are actually two stories being told within the one story. So the one story, of course, gets a lot of the attention about the prodigal son himself. This is the son that goes off and he lives wild. But there's another son in the story. In the story, you have the older son. Now, the older son, he was the straight arrow. He was the one who stayed home. He was the one who followed all the rules. And then when the younger, wild brother returns, you know what the older brother's response is to the younger brother's return? It's resentment. Why does he get all the attention? The older brother says, I never did anything wrong. I have always been here where I was supposed to be. Why does the other brother who messed everything up mess his life up? Why does he get all the attention? And in the story, you know where that leads the older brother? That older brother's self-righteousness in the end causes him to refuse the love of the father. His resentment-filled self-righteousness leads him to think that he doesn't need the father. Now, for me personally, I never identified with a prodigal son. Some of you do. But for me, deep, deep in my soul do I identify with the older son. And so, so for me, and for some of you, your life, or for some of you here, rather, your life sounds a lot like the prodigal son. It's a mess. You are the prodigal son. And Jesus is calling you out of that mess and into his presence. For others of you, Jesus is confronting you in your self-righteousness. And he's calling you to himself. You know, I remember a pastor saying to me once uh, that, you know, Jesus saving him from his self-righteousness 
is as much of a a miracle conversion story as any other conversion story. And for those who have ever been self-righteous, you know how much of a miracle it is when you become aware of that self-righteousness. Praise be to God for that. But no matter what son in that story you identify with, know a conversion needs to happen within you. And like Paul on the road to Damascus, we must all come to that moment where we are confronted by Jesus, an encounter that fundamentally changes us because we will never then be the same. So in that sense, conversion's a moment. But not only is it a moment, it's also a process. Paul has this moment with Jesus. Jesus calls him uh, to go and wait. And he does this. That's what Paul does. For three days, Paul is left blind and can do nothing but pray and think and reflect. As you could imagine, he can't do anything with this sudden blindness. And some have, have considered, what was Paul thinking about? What was he doing for these three days? Now, we aren't told details on what exactly is happening, except for the fact that Paul's praying. We don't really know what he's thinking about or, or doing. But D.A. Carson, who's a, a well-known uh, theologian and scholar, as he reads that story, he imagines something that I'm rather intrigued by. What Carson suggests that maybe Paul was doing in those days is we have to remember uh, that Paul was a biblical scholar. He would have known the Hebrew scriptures like no one else. He was a brilliant, learned man who was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He would have known it all. And Carson imagines that for those three days, Paul is trapped in his own head. And he's processing this encounter that he just had with a resurrected Jesus. Right? He just encountered a man that he believed to be a heretic, and yet a, a dead one at that, and yet here he was. Here Jesus was, right in front of him. And so now Paul, trapped by the blindness, trapped in his own head, I wonder if during that time he begins to consider all that the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah, all that he would have known about from his study of the Hebrew Scriptures. And maybe during that time, while he's trapped in his own head, he's connecting all the dots of the Old Testament Scriptures that are now leading to Jesus. And I'm going to take that a step further, because what I think what he was thinking about was Stephen's sermon. Now, if you remember, I noted last week that Stephen's sermon likely made a profound impact on Paul. Paul was there to hear that sermon, and the rest of Paul's writings throughout the New Testament reflect a lot of what Stephen had said in that sermon that we saw in chapter 7. Now, if you remember the sermon, uh, Stephen spoke about the promises made to Abraham. I wonder if in this time Paul is thinking, is Jesus the fulfillment of all of those promises? In the sermon, Stephen spoke about the law and the sacrificial system instituted by Moses. I wonder if Paul is beginning to think, you know, Jesus did say that he came to fulfill the law. Could that be true? You know, when Jesus said, Paul might be thinking, that he would come to fulfill the prophecies of this Messiah. And Jesus said that, uh, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Could that be true? Stephen's uh, sermon spoke of the temple. You know, but Jesus, Paul might be thinking, said he was going to destroy the temple, but then he would build it up after three days. Was 
Jesus talking about himself? I mean, the temple was the way that people accessed God. Paul might be thinking, is Jesus really the new temple through which people access God? I mean, all of these pieces would likely be coming together for him. And yes, he had this profound moment of clarity where he's confronted with Jesus, but now the depths of understanding who Jesus is is beginning to develop in him. Now he is realizing the extent to which his whole life was going to be radically changed by this encounter that he had. And as we read Paul's writings throughout the rest of the New Testament, we realize that these three days were the beginning of a lifetime of conversion for Paul as he was going to experience a long process of being changed and transformed. In 2 Corinthians 3, which Paul wrote, he has to be thinking when he, uh, when he writes this, he has to be thinking about this time of blindness that he was in. Verse 18, he says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I have to imagine that Paul is remembering when the scales fell from his eyes to the, and now having this realization this, with unveiled faces that he's being transformed into an ever-increasing glory by the work of the Spirit. Those who have this moment of clarity, this moment with Jesus, are also going to be those who are being transformed into the image of Jesus by his Spirit. In other words, conversion is taking place in our lives more and more every day as we have this greater depth of understanding of who Jesus is and when we trust in him deeper and deeper. And I draw this out because I want us all to know that following Jesus is really a lifelong endeavor. And there are endless ways that our lives need to be transformed and converted. Conversion is not just some momentary experience. It is a lifelong process that we call sanctification. And that process for us, like Paul, requires learning the depths of who Jesus is. Conversion is not just some pray we pray, prayer we pray once, but it's a lifetime of commitment. But with all that said then, why should we live this life of constant conversion? Well, there's another, there's one final aspect here in the passage that I want us to consider that really makes conversion as powerful as it is. And that's not only that conversion is a moment, not only is conversion a process, but ultimately, above everything else, conversion is a relationship. That's what makes it powerful. Let me explain to you what I mean. There's two really powerful statements about relationships happening here in our passage. The first would be this. First, um, I have not really had a whole lot of time today to talk about the other person that's in this passage, which is Ananias. He is a remarkable man of God. It is no small thing that Ananias obeys Jesus and goes to Paul. I mean, you need to remember, Paul is persecuting the church, dead set on crushing it. He was very well known by Christians, and in many ways, Ananias is putting his life on the line by going to Paul. But why did he go? What was his role in all of this? Well, it was to provide Paul with one of the two kinds of relationships that's crucial when we consider conversion. I'll explain to you what I mean. When he arrives, 
What does he call him? What does Ananias call Paul as soon as he sees him? He calls him brother. Now that's remarkable, right? Ananias immediately realizes that God's done something in this man. But more than just calling him brother, Ananias would take Paul to the other Christians that are in Damascus, right? The first part of verse 19 tells us that Paul would go and spend time with them. I mean, conversion leads us into relationship with the church, with other Christians. It is no small thing. That is the very first place that Paul goes to after his conversion experience. I have said this time and time again. I will say it again, that the Bible has no categories for a Christian who is not part of a Christian community, of a local church. The very first place Paul uh, the very first place that Paul goes is the church, and then he would spend the rest of his life establishing local congregations all over the world. So number one, conversion leads us into relationship with the church, other Christians. But the other relationship that's described here, there is this other relationship that uh, provides us something that transcends anything that we would experience solely amongst just other Christians. It's a relationship that makes conversion real and powerful in our life. It's a relationship that establishes the Christian community as brothers and sisters, and the clue to that relationship is found in verse 5. If you have it, look at it with me. Saul, after being confronted with Jesus, asks, Who are you? To which Jesus replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What is that about? I mean, is it not curious that Jesus responds this way? I mean, had Paul persecuted Jesus directly? No. Who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting the followers of Jesus. And yet Jesus sees that persecution against his followers as though that persecution is against him personally. That's profound that Jesus sees the persecution that way. I mean, this statement made by Jesus is pointing out one of the most profound truths of the Christian faith. That conversion is a relationship to Jesus known as union with Christ. That when one becomes a Christian, they become one with a resurrected Jesus. So much so that what happens to us, it's as though it's happening to Jesus. Colossians, or uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and John 14, or 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 12, they all speak of how we are in Christ. And yet at the same time, though we are in Christ, we are also told in places like Galatians 2 and Colossians 1 and Romans 8 that Christ is in us. Now, I don't know how all of that works, but Jesus makes it plain here that he is in his people and his people are in him. And that all that we are, he takes. And that all that he is, we are given. I mean, this is the glory of conversion. That conversion is not uh, just following some commands or attending some church. That conversion is literally becoming one with Jesus by his spirit. So that Jesus takes our sin on the cross and defeats it in the resurrection so that his perfection becomes ours. The victory over the grave that he accomplished becomes ours. Why? Because we are unified to a resurrected Savior, which then leads to this life of conversion. This is why conversion is extraordinary. This is why we all need to experience conversion. And this is what takes 
a belief in Jesus in some abstract, as some abstraction into real concrete obedience where now our lives more and more are being conformed to the image of Jesus as his spirit works in, in us. And so I ask you all, no matter where you are along this journey, have you experienced conversion? Have you been confronted by Jesus in your sin? Have you realized that Jesus desires to continue to work in you, to give you a greater depth of understanding? And do you realize that the only reason that that is possible is because as we put our faith in him, he unifies himself to us by his spirit? How glorious and mighty that is. I hope that we all trust in him to do this work in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your son. And we thank you that part of that work is him confronting us. Lord, may you never leave us unconfronted. For when we are left unconfronted, we are inevitably left on a path to destruction. But God, in your faithfulness, you meet us like you met Paul and you confront us on the road. And you make plain to us the ways that we have not trusted you, we have not obeyed you. And then you work in us. You love us too much to leave us where we are in our sin. But by your spirit, you call us out of that sin and into a life that is honoring to you. And so God, I don't know where we all are in our experiences with Jesus, but I ask that we would all be converted and that we, we would be converted by remembering what Jesus has done, that he's accomplished a work that unifies us to himself by the work of his spirit. May that radically transform who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.